I'm Stevie Nicks and welcome to In My Life, the podcast where we get to learn a little bit more about our favourite artists from someone who should know. The artists. Today we're going to take a look at Pink Floyd and hear primarily from its two key planks, Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore. But we'll also get to hear a little bit from Nick Mason, who gets overlooked in any discussion on Pink Floyd. And it's mostly because people tend to break Pink Floyd into three parts. The Sid Barrett years, the Roger Waters period, and the Dave Gilmore era. But the only common denominator in all three periods is in fact the drummer, Nick Mason. Dave Gilmore wasn't around when the band first formed, and Roger Waters, of course, wasn't there at the end. do something a little different today and not focus too much on the band's backstory or even its end story. Instead, I want to focus on Sid Barrett because he remains a source of intrigue for so many people and then zero in on the band's golden age, the period from Dark Side of the Moon to the final cut. In amongst all that is a lot of acrimony and that's something that Roger Waters in particular has a lot to say about. Funny about that given he was the chief protagonist. Pink Floyd's backstory is pretty convoluted, so I'm going to just cut to the chase and tell it as succinctly as I can. So here goes. The band's story begins at the London Polytechnic in 1963, where Waters and Mason are studying architecture. They join a band that includes some fellow students, and a few months later, another guy joins, keyboardist Richard Wright. The group is called Sigma Six. Interestingly, Waters plays lead guitar and Wright plays rhythm guitar due to the fact that keyboards were hard to come by when playing live. Sigma 6 undergoes a few changes in personnel and also changes names a few times before settling on the T-Set in 1964. By now they also have among their ranks a guy called Sid Barrett, who was a childhood friend of Waters. I think the first time I met Sid was at a, a Saturday morning art class that we both attended at Homerton College in Hills Road, Cambridge, when I suppose I was, I don't know, nine or ten, and he was eight or nine. Um, yeah, we used to go and, you know, make pottery crocodiles and paint a bit and whatever. Really young, actually. Yeah. Well, he, I lived um, in a road called Rock Road in Cambridge, and he lived in Hills Road, which he lived about six doors away from my aunt. In 1965, when lead singer Chris Dennis left the band, Barrett assumes his role. He's also the chief songwriter. The group scores a residency at a London club, where they have to play three 90-minute sets a night that stretch from late evening to early morning. To minimise repetition, they decide to extend their songs with long solos, and this becomes the group's trademark. Around this time, they change names again after Barrett discovers there's another band called the T-Set, and that band's been booked on the same bill as them. He comes up with the Pink Floyd Sound, named after two blues musicians that he likes, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. Here's Anderson singing I Got a Woman, a song that Ray Charles would later make famous. I got a woman we cross town She's good to me Oh yeah I got a woman We cross town She's good to me Oh, yeah. 
Waters says Barrett was into avant-garde American music, and Gilmore notes that he was more into the blues than the rest of them. He, you know, was a very bubbly kind of character, um, full of life and enthusiasm, and but also, um, I think he was quite innovative, you know. And I mean, you could say his attachment to. Kenneth Graham and Hilar Belloc and all of that, all of those kind of influences was quite radical for them because you didn't expect that kind of literary middle-class stuff to surface in rock and roll. And, um, and, and you know, in, in the same way that later on his interest in Eastern mysticism and uh, in general and the I Ching in particular, which produced a song like Chapter 24... Uh, you know, to, to 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 start playing around with with those kind of ideas was quite radical. Um, he was also um, he he kind of soaked up musical ideas really from other people. You know, he was a great copycat. Sit in terms of music, he would listen to American uh, the more avant-garde end of the American popular music at the time. So he would be listening to early Doors or. Um, I'm trying to think of the other bands, and I can't, and I won't be able to because, you know, um, I just can't remember that. That is all such a long time ago. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but but he was um, uh, he was a star. You know, very attractive man. Uh, it was it was everything. Sid's sort of um, taste, I suppose, was more in the the Bo Diddley and that sort of area. He he was he loved all that sort of thing. I sort of suppose I liked. I was very keen on that, and I was very keen on um, folk music and early sort of lead belly American folk blues stuff. Um, but I also was very keen on the more structured thing of uh, that the Beatles were starting to do, and harmonies. I was keen on the Beach Boys and stuff like that, and 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 um, Sid's was was definitely sort of more in the blues department, I would say, than than my taste. But um, it didn't. You, you, you're not very a purist about these things at that age. You're just excited by it all and learning new little tricks. I said in his early early days in um, in bands and in the early days of Pink Floyd he used to do great versions of 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 Bo Diddley things you know that were really really good fun by 1966 the band had morphed into a rhythm and blues outfit and more bookings ensued mostly in what was regarded as London's underground by now they were also experimenting with elaborate light shows Here's Nick Mason. Uh, the original gestation of all that was uh, through Mike Leonard, who was at one point a member of the band, but also a, a part-time lecturer at the Regent Street Poly. But he was also a part-time lecturer at Hornsey College of Art. And Hornsey College of Art were doing some experiments with light machines. There was this idea that you wouldn't have a painting on the wall, you'd have a light machine that was constantly changing and creating a, a, a mood or whatever. And we went and supplied music for this, which meant we went and sort of noodled about in a, in a, a weird way. So that, that was the, this idea of working a little bit with light shows. And of course, we'd heard a lot about the Americans without knowing what they were doing, but there was always a reference to light shows. And so we, when we started playing at All Saints Hall and then UFO, mm. uh, the light show came as a sort of separate entity. But we started augmenting that once we realised that it worked for us and created a mood, particularly when we were going out of London. Because as soon as we started uh, actually, I say touring, working, working, um, <laughs> Uh, the London light shows had no interest in heading off for Doncaster, <laughs> particularly given a budget of nil. So we started running our own light show. 
1967, Pink Floyd's profile has grown to the extent that they score themselves a recording contract with EMI, and they put out a single called Arnold Lane, which was written by Barrett. Arnold Lane had a See Emily play quickly follows, and by now the band is on Top of the Pops. But Top of the Pops is not where Barrett wants to be, and by 1967, he starts showing signs that everything's not quite right. By now, Barrett is heavily into LSD, and this has long been held as the chief catalyst of his descent into schizophrenia. Here's Waters. I mean, I I think Sid's illness... It, it probably, you know, we, we can say that um, marijuana, to a certain extent, and acid to a large extent, can do nothing but exacerbate uh, that collection of symptoms that we put together and loosely describe as schizophrenia, you know. And so um, there is no doubt but that those things are very bad for schizophrenics. They worsen the condition and, they, and so on and so forth. And, so, and there, were, there is no doubt that Sid was schizophrenic and that he was taking those, those drugs at the same time. Uh, and I, we all became very worried and concerned about that and, you know, and tried to get him to shrink. So. I alerted his family as well. And his, his elder brother, Alan, I think, was a, was a doctor. And he came up to see He actually came up to London and see him. And, uh, and went back and said, no, no, he's fine, I've seen him, there's nothing wrong with him. Well, we all knew there was something seriously amiss, you know. Um, and we, we actually, as I'm sure you must know, we did a, we did a tour in 68 of, of um, the States. I mean, just of the West Coast, I think we only did three gigs or something. Um, you know, where it was quite clear that he, he'd gone, he was, you know, he, he, he was no longer with us in any real sense. You know, which is where, you know in the movie where the cigarette burns down between the fingers? Well, I, I, I went into the room and saw that. He'd been sitting in a room in the hotel in, in LA with his, you know, bits of cigarette, burned cigarette paper on his fingers like that and the rest of the cigarette lying on the floor and he sat there and it had burned down through his fingers without him noticing. So he was in a very sorry state. I said, look, we can't go on like this, right? You know, he's got to become Brian Wilson, you know. Because the thought of losing the flow of songs was disastrous for us at that point because he was doing most of the writing. Um, so he said, why doesn't he just write songs and come and record and we'll go and do gigs, but he, there's no way we can do that anymore. Gilmore, who wasn't with the band at this stage, says, like Waters, that Barrett probably had a genetic disposition to schizophrenia that LSD simply exacerbated. Once you're into it and you're enjoying it and you're doing it, it's it's part of it's part of your life, and I think it was part of his life on a on a very regular basis. Um, but there are a lot of other people who um, did as much or more. And this has gone on ever since. People have been major users of LSD, and there's a lot of people who've been major users of LSD um, who never had the sort of um, very clear 
mental breakdown that he had, which sort of happened pretty rapidly in, in my memory. It sort of came down like a closing door. Um, so I think there must be, you know, in people's genetic makeup, there must be people who are susceptible to this sort of permanent or if not permanent, then fairly permanent sort of, uh, change to their psyche and to the, to the, the damage that causes them. Um, and I think Sid must have been one of those. Nick Mason, on the other hand, once proposed the theory that maybe Barrett wasn't mad and that everyone simply assumed that he was because he no longer wanted to be in the band. I'm not sure he really believes that, though. What happened to Sid? And, uh, what happened to Sid is interconnected with what happened to us. Um, I mean, r- r- briefly, when I first met Sid, he was the most charming, interesting, easygoing guy. I mean, fantastic. We, we were all being a bit cool, but Sid was perfectly prepared to say hello. You know, it's really uh, slightly different. And then it sort of went off. Uh, he sort of, he changed. But there were two elements to this. One is the belief, and there's belief that uh, LSD had a real effect on him. There, there was definitely a sense that he was... Um, uh, he was tripping, and then the trips were bad trips, and so instead of leaving it, he'd think, I can break through this by doing more. That's number one. Number two is, very recently, there's been uh, quite a lot of talk about something called STP, which was a form of LSD that was prevalent at the time, which was ten times stronger than uh, the sort of regular doses. And... It is it sounds as though possibly Sid got involved in in some of that. There's also another completely different side to this, which is that Sid possibly, somewhere around the sort of end of '67, began to realise he didn't actually want to be in a rock band, and we of course assumed that that meant he was insane. Um, and in fact, there is a, uh, you know, Roger maintains that uh, he talked to uh, Ronnie Lang about this, uh, who was the well-known psychiatrist of the, of the period. And Ronnie Lang said, well, maybe Sid's not mad, maybe you are. Which was a very good call, because, as I say, maybe Sid just thought, I don't want this commercial Top of the Pops all there, which we did, mm. um, and wanted out. And as I say, we... We couldn't believe that this would be the case, and so we kept trying to cure him. In August 1967, Pink Floyd put out their first album, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, their first and last with Barrett in their number. The group heads off on a tour of the States, but Barrett is now acting very strangely, going as far as refusing to open his mouth during mimed television performances. When they get back home, the others decide to bring Dave Gilmore into the fold to more or less do Sid's parts. The theory was that Barrett would write the songs and leave the others to perform them, a bit like Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Interestingly, Gilmore wasn't overly impressed with the band and took some convincing to join. I felt pretty superior, I have to say. Uh, Sid was obviously, you know, very talented. Um, The... And Rick was a good musician, but uh, Nick and Roger were fairly pedestrian at, at that time, and um, and uh, and we uh, they were possibly well, it was definitely a bit more original than what we were doing, but we were we were much much slicker, and um, we could do um, all sorts of Beatles and Beach Boys things in in wonderful harmonies and stuff, but it was we were more of a sort of pretty good local covers band, and I think that it would be fair to say that they were trying to do something slightly different. I was working as a van driver in the daytime um, and trying to work out what I was going to do musically um, from that point, how to get into something. So I was going out to gigs and pubs and God knows what all over London, constantly and I would be seeing a fair bit of Sid and and of the 
other group of friends that we had at that time. Um, and I went to all, all their gigs that one could go to locally. And um, so I ran into him a little bit more than I had done. And um, I got to know the others, Nick and, and Rick and Roger, a bit better. And uh, they did a gig at the Royal College of Arts just by the Albert Hall in probably November. And at that one, Nick sidled up to me and, and, and told me that things were getting pretty desperate and they were, I was to keep it under my hat, but they were thinking of making some sort of a change and would I be interested? So, and um, what were your thoughts? Um, well, it wasn't exactly the sort of musical thing that I wanted to get into at that particular point, it, to be honest. And uh, But the fame that they had achieved was obviously very enticing. Um, but um, I didn't think that it was... <coughs> sorry. I didn't think it was that serious. And um, I didn't know whether it would become a reality, so I just sort of forgot about it, I think, after that time until until just after the new year when they rang up and actually made me a, a specific offer. Um, which obviously was the start of a very difficult and, and strange time with both Sid and I turning up together to, to rehearsals and going out and doing shows with five of us where I would be playing, I would be learning and playing Sid's parts and singing Sid's songs while Sid would be sort of standing there and sometimes singing a little bit and sometimes playing a little bit and very odd. You know, there was discussion, you know, of you know, the old discussions of, of that, that he would eventually sort of stay home being a Brian Wilson sort of writing character and we would still continue using his material and uh, I would uh, be the, the front man on stage but um, it wasn't really workable and that notion passed quite quickly I think we, there were only five gigs as I remember it where we, the five of us played together before um, we ceased to go and pick him up As you just heard the plan didn't last long and Barrett left the band now, I want to jump ahead a bit and go to the start of the band's golden run. I don't know about you, but I'm just not that interested in A Saucer Full of Secrets, Amagama, Adam Hart Mother, or even Metal. Dark Side of the Moon hits the stores in March 1973, and it would be an understatement to say it was a quantum leap forward for the band. Nobody saw this album coming, but plenty of people heard it once it came out. The record explores complex themes such as conflict, greed, time, death and mental illness. All the lyrics were written by Waters, who was just 30 at the time. Here's Gilmore on America's FMQB. You know, what it, what it became. You know, I can't remember the exact point where things changed. I mean, as soon as Roger came in with the idea of its central themes of how the pressures of modern life can affect your sanity... Um, it started taking a shape from then on, I would say. And, and what was the, the mood of the band then? Was it, was it a particularly magic time for you guys? I, I can't remember it as being anything out of the normal, you know. Um, it was, we, we were working hard. We were getting on with this stuff. And we were coming up with tunes that we really liked. It, it felt good. But it, 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 that feeling that, that we're onto a real magical something came a bit later down the line.
Waters is proud of what he wrote and believes his lyrics are one of the primary reasons that the record still resonates. Is it one of the reasons why your albums are so successful and that they do strike that? An unusual kind of emotional chord, really. I'm sure it is, yeah. You know, it's like after Dark Side of the Moon was successful in the early days, people would say, why do you think it is? And, you know, people continue to to, to ask that. And um, I'm sure that's the reason. You know, and if you ask Rick, I'm sure he'll still tell you he has no idea. You know, because he can't, he can't allow the fact that it might be something to do with what the record's about. But I think it is. I mean, obviously the, you know, the Dark Side of the Moon is quite compelling musically. You know, and it and it's got some some terrific. Uh, music on it, Rick, uh, to which Rick contributed greatly, I have to say. But, you know, in in a way, I think that the shape of the thing and also, an, and also um, the sound of the music and what it is actually springs, the wellspring is the expression of the emotion which is actually in the lyric. Beca- and, and it, you know, it's, it's funny you should say that because there's something, I, and maybe I learned this from Sid, there's something about um, breathe, breathe in the air, don't be afraid to care, you know, leave but don't leave me, which is so simplistic and sort of puerile that it would be very easy to write it down on a piece of paper and then immediately crumble it up and throw it in the bin because you'll be laughed at, you know. And uh, maybe I learned from Sid that it's really important that you don't throw that stuff in the bin, that you keep it, that that's that, that kind of almost the childish expression of feeling is is the important bit and all the embellishment that goes on around it is you know is secondary to that to the this is how i feel now in a few words however laughable it may seem in in a way it's a new english tradition from the begin from the early 60s from the beatles really you know, and the Beatles almost single-handedly wrenched, and Sid was a huge Beatles fan, and they, in a, in a, it feels as if Lennon and McCartney single-handedly wrenched the um, power of the pen from Tim Pan Alley, and brought it home to the lads, you know, or to the real feelings, so that suddenly we were given permission because of their enormous success to write from our own experience, you know, and and to not. And to uh, you know, and to not no longer be subjugated to the world of the publishing company and the whatever, but just say no. This is how I feel. Boom! I paint what I see. End of story. One of the things that the album is synonymous with is the theory that it was recorded to play while watching The Wizard of Oz. Now I can't say I've ever done it, but Joe Rogan has. And last year, when he had Waters on his program, he asked him if there was any substance to the theory. Bullshit. Is it bullshit? Yeah, of course it is. I mean, it may not be. It may be it that if like you the do what they say, it may be if you do what they say, but it has nothing to do with us, okay. in any of us, nothing to do with anyone in Pink Floyd or anyone who wrote or recorded any of the music. It's something that somebody thinks. So it's a it's a coincidence of some time, and maybe it's cosmic coincidence. And it's I do like the story though of. Um, the cop in Louisiana following a bus and it was weaving about the road a bit. And, and so he pulls it over young motorcycle cop, boom, puts the bike up on the stand, opens the door, <coughs> nearly falls over. There's so much smoke coming out through the bloody door. He goes in, it goes through and he's trying to f- find people, you know, with dope because it's just full of marijuana smoke. Eventually gets to the back of the bus where there's a private compartment. He opens the door and goes in and there's Willie Nelson. And he, and the story is that Willie Nelson is listening to Dark Side of the Moon and watching The Wizard of Oz on the TV. 
and I don't believe it for a minute, but I like the story. Yeah, I don't even want to investigate that. I want it to be true. I don't want to find out it's not true. But if you, I've I've watched it. I've watched The Wizard of Oz, listening to The Dark Side of the Moon while high on marijuana. And if it's not on purpose, it is a cosmic coincidence because it's kind of amazing. Oh, it's kind man. of amazing how it, it just flows. If only I smoked dope, I could join you in that experience. You don't smoke at all? Dark Side of the Moon was going to be a hard act to follow. Was it a fluke or was this now the standard that the band could maintain? Well, the answer came two years later when Wish You Were Here came out. And the answer was Dark Side wasn't an aberration. The band, particularly Waters, was now in a groove. Interestingly, Barrett turned up one day during the recording, but his appearance was so dishevelled that the others didn't recognise him. Everyone remembers it slightly differently, Sid turning up and who was the one who finally spotted who he was and, and what then happened. Again, my memory is not over clear on it, um, but he definitely was there and was wandering around and at some point someone said, God, that's it. We really, for some considerable period of time, it might have been 15 minutes, it might have been an hour, didn't recognise him at all. Shaved and shaved bald head and very plump. Wish You Were Here was another concept album with a beginning, middle and end. And the theme was absence, mostly inspired by the absence of their former bandmate. An album used to be like a photo album. It was just a collection of songs. They didn't have to have any connection one with another. That's why they were called albums, because they were just like books of photographs, really. Whereas what we had started to work on, and well, with Dark Side of the Moon, we'd arrived at that thing. No, it's not an album, although we still call them albums. It's a, you know, it's a coherent, cohesive piece of work with a beginning and a middle and an end. And it's it's more like a play or, or a film than it is like what we used to call albums. Frank Chuckersfield, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and there's a bunch of songs, different songs, and they have nothing to do one with the other. No, we, these songs do have to do one with the other. And in the case of Wish You Were Here, they're all about absence in one way or another. So that's central theme, which is why the title works well. Everything about it is kind of is, is coherent. Tensions within the band, particularly between Waters and Gilmore, were high but they managed to keep it together long enough to finish the record. Gilmore blames Waters for the problems, accusing him of being domineering, a charge that Waters has never denied. You know, our personal problems in the band by that time were sort of becoming more dominant. Um, Roger was becoming more dominant, and uh, it was less easy to to argue um, that... uh, the, the music had to um, stand on its own before you added the extra weight of lyrics and uh, I don't think that um, uh, I had no real disagreements with what was being said on Wish You Were Here for example or on Dark Side of the Moon but um, you know once it's established that Roger is the, the lyricist, it becomes harder and harder to say, well, do you think we need to go down this road? For his part, Waters says Wish You Were Here marked the end of the group being, in his words, a band of brothers. He says the disagreements centred on the fact that he and Gilmore had differing opinions as to what the lyrical direction of the record should take, something that you just heard Gilmore deny. The whole album was, a, you know, was a, a kind of nightmare to put together because Dave and I were already absolutely at loggerheads in, um, by then, and he had one whole idea about it uh, of what it was going to be like, and I had a whole other idea. Um, I'm happy to say my idea won in the end, and so there was some, you know, other stuff that got onto animals later, like raving and drooling and things, um, but. Um, 
I don't know. It seemed it seemed to me when we were making that record in the aftermath of the enormous success enormous success of uh, Dark Side of the Moon that you know in a way I I sort of knew that really we we were over as far as the band of brothers notion of a pop group was concerned. We just weren't anymore, and we were never going to be that again. And so. I was mourning that loss as well as the loss of um, of Sid as a as a friend and as a colleague. Um, and so I guess you know lyrically that's what I'm expressing in that thing. And I mean I I've been Gilmore says the source of the tensions was the fact that everyone apart from Waters wasn't fully focused on making the album. Despite that, though, he regards Wish You Were Here as Pink Floyd's most complete record. It was disengagement. It was not willing to, being willing to apply yourself sufficiently to what was going on. And a lot of moments where any one of us might have been much more interested in thinking about what they were doing that weekend or, um, and the, the concentrated activity was rather diluted and I'm sure for a a very pushing driving sort of person like Roger was more frustrating than it was for anyone else although considerably frustrating for all of us I suspect. To me it's about the most complete album in some ways. Um, The balance between the musical strength and the emotions that are tied up within pure music and the greatness of the lyrics um, come together in a balance which is as close to my idea of perfection in that area as as I can think of. Um, And we all know how difficult it was to get to that point and the problems we had, you know, R- Roger feeling quite accurately, I think, that, um, you know, there was an awful lot of absence, you know, an awful lot of people not really quite being there in this post-dark side of the moon period where we were all having to assess what we were in in this business for, why we were doing it, whether we were artists or business people um, in and having achieved the sort of success and money out of out of it all that um, that could fulfil anyone's wildest teenage dreams, why we would still want to continue to do it. Um, Roger, I think, has sometimes said that he thinks that we were kind of finished at that point. Um, and he may have been right, but um, I think for me it was a temporary finish. And uh, me, anyway, I wouldn't like to speak for anyone else, re- recovered my appetite for making popular music um, after a while. Probably during the making of that album, in fact. And one of the things that I think is sort of better about it than Dark Side of the Moon is the space that is there is there and the um the our ability to just create an emotional mood and let it sit and build itself up for for long quite a long period of time um, not something that many of us or many other people can are brave enough to go with attention spans have changed i think so so you think you could tell Heaven from hell Blue skies from pain Can you tell a green field From a cold steel rail A smile from a veil Do you think you could tell
thing that they all do agree on is that the song you just heard, which is about Barrett, is a hell of a song. You know, it's a really good song. It describes it describes how I um, experienced his disintegration. Um, and it describes as well the um, great desire I had then and still have now, and the passion I have. Uh, um to celebrate him and his talent and his humanity and to express the love that I have for, for him. But it always, it still resonates. It still has, has its meaning. It means that to me every time I sing it. It's, it's a brilliant, which is a very, very good combination of, of music and words that seems to be, seems to capture something. That was me strumming a 12-string guitar, which I'd recently purchased from a guy I know, and coming up with the, you know, the opening riff of Wish You Were Here. And again, like, like the four notes at the beginning of Shine On You Crazy Diamond, you find something that you like and you repeat a few times, and then other people start going, hey, that's good, I've got, you've got something there. And Roger said to me, what's that you're doing there? What's that? That's good. Let's work on it. And um, so I think Roger and I then worked on writing the verses and putting those chords into the, into the whole thing. And Roger did those brilliant words, and there we are. Very simple and easy. <laughs> In the um, in the control room of Number Three Studio at Abbey Road, and um, it's just something I'd been strumming at home. And Roger immediately said, "What's that? What's that?" And we had to sort of immediately get on with that and work it up and write the rest of the music and stuff. So that just arrives. So, so there it's, it's, it's you know one bit of riff. From another bit of riff, it's you know there's hundreds of different ways you can do something, almost the same as that, but and some work and some have a little bit of magic to them, and it's and some don't, and the ones that do have that bit of magic to them, it's obvious, you know, to people around. They even just that piece of music has an emotional pull to it. That's what we're struggling to find all the time. The other song that everyone associates with Wish You Were Here is, of course, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Here, Gilmore talks about its composition, which began with four simple but evocative notes. Uh, the little sort of cool thing, which is... Which I always screw up on stage. Yeah, just I don't know where that came from. But again, just you, you play something and you play it again and you start play it lots of times and it starts having a call to it, doesn't it? Yeah. I don't know where it came from. I might, I might, as I say, I might have been just playing an A minor chord. Boring old just move my fingers to the wrong position. It could just be an accident, but... But it did seem to sort of have a sort of haunting, calling sound to it. And 
I can remember plonking it and thinking, mm, and then playing it again, then playing it again, and repeating it over and over. And while it sort of called out hauntingly to me and uh, everyone else. The notes came from nowhere. They just sort of fell out and created this thing. But um, there was something about them that evoked feelings in myself and in Roger particularly. Roger has said in the past how that, you know... And that is what happens when you sit and work together and jam. There are these rare, it has to be said, but there are moments where some little thing will emerge by any one of us and will create the starting point, the foundation for you to be able to build something because it creates an emotional background for you to work with him. Um, well, I guess somehow those notes evoked a song about Sid and um, his disappearance, absence, if you like, in Roger. Um, but without necessarily having to without having to actually have a, um, access to Roger's conscious thought of it being about Sid, the rest of us could also hear the emotional content that was in what we were beginning to put together. And that music started being written and didn't, you know, I can't remember at what point the idea of it being about Sid and being called China and Your Crazy Diamond came in. Um, but it would have continued to be worked on and to start taking some sort of shape even before that uh, lyric idea came in. But I confess, I can't, I can't remember the chronology exactly. I think the, the song is brilliant in its sort of evocation of what, you know, Sid obviously, uh, but, sorry, or Roger obviously felt about Sid, and it certainly it matches mine. Um, you know, he was... A kind of a crazy diamond, and, and all the things it says about him, you know, those brilliant lines are very, very accurate, you know. Wore out your welcome with random precision was certainly a part of him, and... Remember when you were young <laughs> You shone like the sun Pink Floyd's next great album was their 11th, 1979's The Wall. I'll let Waters tell you where he got the idea for it from. Yeah, yeah, no, yes, I, I, I famously did that on the Animals tour. I became very disaffected with that whole thing, and I got very kind of snotty with the audiences for, like, getting drunk and shouting and, and uh, you know, generally having a hooray time when I, when, when I, I would have been happier if they'd been actually listening to the music. And I, I confess I'm way, way less critical and more relaxed now than I was in those days. Yeah. Uh, which is just as well because um, inevitably, you know, you still get people getting up and down and going for a beer and a piss and all that, uh, which is fine. Uh, um, though I'm not playing stadiums on this tour, I'm only playing arenas, so uh, it, it's... Um, it's different. It, it was one of the um, 
sort of uh, the early gestation, if you like, if I understand uh, it correctly, of of the wall. It was that boorish behaviour of you know the fans in inverted commas, and you thought, as you just said, you know, God, this is awful. I can't be bothered with this. I'd love to have a wall between me and them. And then, of course, it developed as an idea, didn't it? That's where the idea originally came from. Yeah, I famously. Um uh, some guy in the Olympic Stadium in Montreal when we were pay- playing there on the Animals Tour came scrabbling up the front of the stage and I, and, uh, I spat, in it, spat at him. I don't know if I hit him or not. Uh, I hope I didn't because it was a awful thing to do. And I was so disgusted with myself afterwards. I then went through a long period of uh, soul-searching. But out of, out of that particular incident came, came the idea of actually doing a show and building a wall uh, across the front of the stage to um, you know, express my feelings of alienation. And I thought, well, this may all be very, very unhealthy, but what a great idea. <laughs> and so uh, um, I brought it up with the rest of the band, and they all thought, no, well, he definitely needs locking up now. He's gone completely doolally. And uh, that, it's really insane. But I said, no, no, I'm serious. I think this could be really good. And so I did a, did a few more drawings, and uh, and then I uh, and then I made um, a demo of a, of what was to become the album. And uh, and slowly they they kind of went. What was their initial reaction to that demo? Uh, well, I, I made I actually made two demos. I made and I took them in at the same time. I said, I'm going to make one of these as a solo album, and one of these I'll make with the band, and you can take your pick. And one was pros and cons of hitchhiking, and the other was um, the wall. And they said, "Oh, well, we'll do the wall." And um, I went, "Okay, good." And and so we did. And um, uh, it was, you know, a great collaboration. If tensions were bad during the making of "Wish You Were Here," they only escalated during the recording of the wall, and they reached crisis point during the final cut. Waters says, though, despite the acrimony, the band was still able to record some excellent music. And Nick Mason says the acrimony not only informed their music, but even inspired some of it. I know about. Off the back of um, the success of Dark Side of the Moon, we were very fragmented. And um, and to some large extent remained so for the rest of our time together. Um, and that's not to say... We didn't do some terrific work together, and we, which we did. You know, I love all the all the rest of the stuff that we did together. I think it, it, I think it's good in one way or another. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think if there had not been conflict, we would um, not have uh, produced the records we did, and uh, that is one of the, the, the sort of that's that's just how things work. And I think a lot of bands produce great material, uh, not by being the monkeys and lovable mop tops or jumping about at double speed. Quite often that conflict is how things get developed properly and, and, and well. So had Waters become too domineering? Well, in 2013, he was asked that very question and this is what he had to say. Yes. Yes and no. I may have been domineering, but... You either have ideas or you don't. And if you do have ideas, you can't be expected to sit on them like that. You know, just because somebody else doesn't, isn't having ideas. So that's why it was the correct thing for us to split up, or for me to leave, mm-hmm. if you like, so that I could express my ideas unfettered. And my ideas are still, I'm, I'm, you know, I've had a few breakthroughs recently, which I won't talk about, because, but I am going to make another record. I've had a very, very strong idea, and I shall pursue it. I will make at least one more record, and I'm really looking forward to getting my teeth stuck into it. But I couldn't be doing that if I had somebody looking over my shoulder going, oh, I don't think that's very good. Well, do something yourself then. Mm, Well, I might need a few years before I actually write a song. There is only so much bickering anyone can take. Sooner or later, things are going to fall apart, and the final cut was the final straw for Waters. Interviewed in 1984, a year after the album came out, he said that as far as he was concerned, Pink Floyd was finished. I know Dave didn't like it. It was was very difficult. It was a difficult time making that record. But, you know, either you go on working or you stop working. I I paint what I see. I write what I feel. But, you know, in a situation like that, you either say, I don't like that, 
and then you can have a fight about it. And what what happens happens. That didn't happen when we were making the final cut. I just I, I was just left to get on with it. I don't see any future for the band. Why? Because we don't want to work together anymore. Do you want to elaborate on that at all? Not really. No. Okay. The band always was sort of thought of as your band in a way. Do you think that was very difficult for the others? You'd have to ask them that. Yeah. But for you even to be aware of that kind of problem and that kind of tension. Yeah, of course it's difficult. Yeah, of course it is. If you've got something that's pretending to be a group, and that many years ago probably was, when it slowly becomes one person's work, then of course it's very difficult for everybody. Interestingly, Gilmore, who was interviewed on the same program, albeit not at the same time, says that although he doesn't like the final cut, he doesn't see it as the end of Pink Floyd. If nothing else, you have to say that the guy can clearly put up with a hell of a lot. Well, it's obviously, you know, no real secret that uh, the final cut, personally, for me, wasn't everything that could or should have been. You know, we have had a number of disagreements on the final cut, um, which resulted in Roger really basically producing the album himself because I disagreed with the way it was being done so radically that it was counterproductive, me having an involvement in the production of it, really. In the end, I don't personally like the album very much. Um, I think there are three great tracks on it. But a lot of, of it, three? I read that you said four, but that you said the four wasn't enough. No, no three, three. Three. Three great tracks, I think, there are on it, and that three certainly isn't enough. And, you know, some of the rest is okay and some of it is substandard to me I think the album overall is a substandard album and Roger probably still thinks he was right about the way it was done I still think he was wrong but that's one of those things did you ever get to the point where you thought so much that he was wrong that you really just wanted to walk away from Pink Floyd I wanted to walk away from that project yeah but not from Pink Floyd you know I mean times change you know it was a problem, really, because we went into it without having set the ground rules. We never sort of sat down and said, right, in a month we'll start making an album and this is how we'll do it or anything. We just sort of drifted into it from making a, a soundtrack for the war movie, which became not necessary, and drifted on into making a Pink Floyd record. And I think when and if we do a Pink Floyd project again, I have no idea whether we will, but when and if we do, you know, it will have to be a situation of sort of establishing some ground rules before we go into doing it. The final cut lived up to its name, and it became the last album that Pink Floyd recorded with Waters. He left the band in 1985 and thought, with his departure, that that also signalled the end of Pink Floyd. Gilmore and Mason, though, had other ideas, and despite Waters' howls of protest, released another three albums, culminating with 2014's The Endless River. They flutter behind you, your possible pasts Some bright-eyed and crazy, some frightened and lost A warning to anyone still in command their possible future to take care in derelict sightings the pop is entwined with cattle trucks lying in wait for the next time For a band so racked with bad blood and division, the story actually has a happy ending. In 2005, which was the 20th anniversary of Live Aid, Bob Geldof organised another string of concerts called Live Eight and managed to coax Mason, Wright, Waters and Gilmore to bury the hatchet and gather on stage one last time. 
As you can imagine though, the reunion was far from a fait accompli, but in the end, Gilmore did it for his kids. I had some reservations about doing it. I mean, obviously I wanted to support the cause, but um, I felt that they would manage perfectly well without us. Um, and I knew that uh, doing it would distract from the work I was in the middle of. I was in the middle of this album and um, I did have a deadline and I thought it would get in the way of what I was doing. And it did. But <laughs> that's life. What was it then about Live 8 that persuaded you and Roger Waters to, to, to bury the hatch, at least for that day? Um, well, as I said before, the cause, you know, trying to... Uh, um, relieve this poverty in Africa and in other areas, mostly Africa anyway, um, obviously is a very good thing to do. And I'm very pleased to be a part of that. Also, all this sort of um, bitterness and rubbish that's been going on for the last 20 odd years, it's nice to, it's nice to put that into a, a compartment where you can forget about it. And I also thought that my youngest children who hadn't really seen me perform and hadn't seen me doing that stuff with Pink Floyd would be, it would be a shame if I didn't do it for them. So they were part of the equation too. Well, you know, I have no great um, desire to do that again. I, if, if the right moment came up at some point to do another one-off thing of that sort, I don't suppose I would look uh, too harshly upon it, but um, I certainly don't intend to go out on tour or anything like that with Pink Floyd. It's, it's in the past for me. In 2003, Rolling Stone published its list of the greatest albums of all time, and Pink Floyd had four entries. Dark Side of the Moon at 43, The Wall at 87, Wish You Were Here at 209, and Piper at the Gates of Dawn at 347. In 1996, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and pointedly, Waters did not join the other three to receive the award. Pink Floyd, as I said earlier, was a band that managed to make music despite itself. Did Waters overreach? Well, he'll say he didn't. He'll say he simply stepped into the void that Barrett's departure created, and none of the others joined him. And it's hard to argue against that. But the question still remains... Did he go too far? Was he too autocratic or simply singularly driven with a work ethic that the others lacked? Gilmore would go with the former, Waters with the latter, and Mason would probably sit on the fence. There's a strong perception that Pink Floyd was Roger Waters' band through that classic 70s period, but Gilmore disputes that. He says the band was a band in the true sense of the word, with all four members playing their part. It wasn't sort of like, felt like it was Roger Waters' group. Well, I've never felt that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I know a lot of people do think that, you know. A lot of people have been led to believe that. And it's understandable, you know. He's had the majority of the writing credits and has written all the lyrics for everything we've done for the last ten years. And he, you know, he certainly deserves more credit within it than I do. But that's not to say... I don't want to sound apologetic or anything, you know, because, but I think my part is vital to making it what it is. You can't actually pin down what is and what isn't Pink Floyd by the people who are in it. It's, so it's, it's every one of us, every one of the four of us is kind of a vital part of the, of the mix. And you're deluding yourself if you think anything other than that. Of course, you can take that on into the moment when Roger had gone and uh, we had to persevere without him um, and you can say something's lost but certainly something was gained as well I'm going to give the last word to Waters because A, that's what he'd want and B, he has something nice to say this is him in 2013 and to be fair, his thoughts on Pink Floyd tend to change with the weather but on this day, he at least conceded that despite the shit that they went through, shit he mostly made he looks back on Pink Floyd with pride and you know what? He should. But basically, we were a real group, four guys driven by the ambition of making it. With Dark Side of the Moon, we made it, and those ambitions ceased to be quite as important as they were. And so the cracks which led to the eventual schism in mm. 1983 or whenever it was 
were there all through the making of Wish You Were Here and Animals well, and the war and certainly the final. I mean, that is... In fact, as became increasingly clear as the years went by, we didn't have all that much in common. But we did work well together. I mean, the work that we did together through, um, in spite of the fact, you know, that we, we were not blood brothers, um, was remarkable. And, well, we, was and remarkable. we both made great contributions to but, it, well, as did Rick and as you, did Nick. With so. respect, you, over years since, you have talked about the fact that, you know, you felt... The songwriting, frankly, was more and more being yours, you know, that you felt they weren't contributing very much. And there was, I think, toward the end... <laughs> it wasn't something I felt. That, those are the facts. Right. And toward the end, I mean, David Gilmore said that at certain sessions and, and recording uh, moments, he, he felt almost there wasn't any point turning up because you were so <laughs> controlling. You are such a stirrer. <laughs> I'm not going there. That's it. I'm not going any further. We had a great career together. It was fantastic. I look back upon it with huge um, pride, or, you know, but with a great feeling that, wow, that, and almost of surprise that we managed somehow to create this great work. And I'm not going to apportion plaudits or blame to anybody. If you want to hear a little bit more about Pink Floyd, check out my other podcast, Song Sung You. There you will find an episode devoted to the band and some of the better covers that their songs have inspired. There's also a mixtape in there somewhere too if you just want to concentrate on the originals. Song Sung You. Come join me underneath the covers. Ooh la la.